Welcome, everyone, to another Blaney's podcast. This afternoon, we have the pleasure of interviewing uh, Margaret Rintoul, who is the uh, chair of our Wills and Estates group and is the author of a number of uh, books, manuals, papers, uh, and has given a number of uh, seminars and lectures on the topic of estates and wills. Uh, Good afternoon, Margaret. Good afternoon, Lou. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to start this podcast by talking about some some issues surrounding powers of attorney. And I'm going to start you off with a scenario that I know you're very familiar with. You're sitting in your office. You get a phone call from a client of yours who says, my mother is very sick. I've received a call from a doctor who tells me that I'm going to have to look after her, both from a financial point of view and a health point of view. I have this power of attorney. What do I do now? Okay, that is a a pretty common sort of question, especially in this era of aging populations and the sandwich generation who are being called upon to look after parents, aunts, uncles, even grandparents. And the first question that would come to mind when I speak to this client would be, do you have the original power of attorney document? Now, if this is a client that we've been acting for and we have the power of attorney physically in our safekeeping, then I would be looking at saying, in order to release the power of attorney to you, son, I will need identification from you. Depending on circumstances, I might need a confirming letter from his mother's doctor to say that the power of attorney was necessary. But one way or another, the individual who is now having to look after mother's affairs is going to have to get the original power of attorney and it's that document or more commonly notarial copies of it that have to be used with the various financial institutions in order to allow him to act as her attorney or as you know in her shoes to look after her affairs. Let me just make a couple of uh, points clear for the people listening to us, and, and that is, first of all, to understand what exactly a power of attorney is and how does it work. It's an excellent question, and a lot of people tend to misunderstand a bit how it works. A power of attorney is simply a document that an individual has signed with the proper witnesses saying, I appoint somebody or one or two people, maybe as many as three, to make decisions for me regarding my property. And most powers of attorney are written so that they can be used by the appointees at any time if they have the original document. They're used in business all the time in order to allow somebody to have business deals, real estate deals, closed and dealt with for them while they're traveling, for instance. But when powers of attorney are being considered as a means of looking after property for an incapacitated individual, then you're talking about a provision that has to be in the document that says it is my intention that this document shall be applicable in the event of my mental incapacity, or some words to that effect, 
And if that's there, then this is the document that allows the person named in it to make property decisions for the individual while they're alive, but even though they're incapacitated. And typically, this is looking after bank accounts, looking after investments, selling real estate if a house has to be sold, and paying bills, bringing in the uh, income, looking after filing tax returns. There is a second power of attorney, which people do have to recognize is a different document, and it's uh, handled somewhat differently, considered to be something along the lines of what gets known as a living will, but it is specifically appointing somebody to make decisions about personal care when the individual who's giving it is incapacitated, and it only applies when they're incapacitated. So we have, in effect, a a power of attorney which allows an individual the ability to deal with an incapacitated person's property. And is there a name for that power of attorney? It's usually referred to simply as a power of attorney for property, sometimes as an enduring power of attorney, but that's basically what they're called. And the other power of attorney, once again, the contingent upon incapacity, is one which allows the, the attorney, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, uh, the ability to make decisions about the health and care of the incapacitated person. Exactly. And, and is there a specific name for that power of attorney? Well, that is specifically called a power of attorney for personal care. I see, of course. Now, let's talk about the issue of incapacity. How does that get addressed in, in terms of being able to, if you wish, trigger the power of attorney? That's a difficult question in terms of just the way that the law works in Ontario. There are powers of attorney that are written to say they can take effect only if the individual who's given it is mentally incapacitated. There are others that only say that they are effective from the time they're signed and they can be used when the person is incapacitated. There's no absolute test that says you must have a doctor's letter or you must have a capacity assessor's report or whatever in order to use a power of attorney. So they are rather woolly in that regard. The scenario that you've posed to me is probably the more most common one where mother or father have taken a stroke or they've had some sort of trauma where they just cannot manage on their own and that is often the triggering point just at a practical level but there's lots of times that parents are quite happy to allow their child or a niece or nephew or somebody close to them to assist them using a power of attorney when there's no mental incapacity or that they're they're fading but legally they're still competent just because they need help and they hopefully they recognize that they need that help. So let's get to a situation where this power of attorney has been triggered and this you're now in a position as an attorney where you have to do certain things to look after your mom or your dad from a financial point of view and from a health point of view. Now, is there, are there certain things that one needs to do? In other words, is, is there some kind of checklist we can look at that uh, sets forth the various duties and obligations of, of a power of attorney? 
in our own website, there is a checklist that I've prepared that is, I think, helpful in terms of just laying out the basics that uh, an attorney needs to be aware of when they're managing property. It doesn't address personal care in that particular form, but it does give an outline of how the property issues have to be handled. I think in general terms, I would have to say, first and foremost, do not mix up money. Under no circumstances should anybody who's operating under a power of attorney put their own money into the same account that their mother or father or whosoever money they're managing is already sitting. Intermingling of funds, which is the technical term given to that, is something that has to be avoided at all costs because it's the fastest way for an attorney to get themselves into serious trouble. I presume as well that uh, there has to be certain decisions made by the attorney as to where mom and dad will live and decisions made about the home, the family home, and the real estate. That's where there's a real interplay between a personal care power of attorney and a property power of attorney because in a personal care power of attorney gives authority to make decisions about housing where the person's going to live, are they going to live at their own home with care, are they going to go into assisted living, do they have to go into long-term care. Those are all decisions that fall to the personal care power of attorney holder. The issues about who's going to pay for it and how is it going to be financed falls to the holder of that, the property power of attorney. I presume usually um, both of those powers of attorney is given to the same person. I would say it happens, but I would have to say that it's by no means universal. <laughs> I see. But at one point in time, the attorney who receives that uh, the document has to make a decision as to whether they're going to sell the house or not. Yes. And is that something that is provided for or authorized in a, in a property power of attorney? It should be, yes. And... If that happens, how do we deal with uh, the sale? What price do we sell it for? And what do we do with the money once we receive this, the, the sale proceeds? Just to backtrack a little bit, I would want anybody listening to this to understand that there are powers of attorney that banks issue. And they often ask you if you want, if you want somebody else to handle your own bank account that you sign a power of attorney that is in a form that the bank prepares. And that power of attorney will work for that bank or those set of bank accounts, but it does not act as a general power of attorney that allows the holder to deal with other things like selling the house. If there's an issue about selling a house, you'd better have a general power of attorney that covers all assets. To to your point of how do you make those decisions, you must be uh, aware of what the property is properly worth. I would say it would be unusual for somebody acting under power of attorney to sell a property to try to do it anywhere other than through a multiple listing sale process. There should be some sort of independent valuations so that you are getting 
proper value for the property because you have to act in the best interests of the person whose affairs you're looking after. And that means getting them the most appropriate price for their property. It means dealing with their investments in an appropriate manner. I presume that that would mean it would be difficult to justify selling mom's home to a brother of yours or a good or a, or a good friend. Yes, it would be difficult to justify that one unless you were getting fair market value the same as anybody else would be paying. Now, is there any formal accounting that uh, an attorney must be responsible for in order to discharge his obligations? At the most extreme level, there is a very detailed format for accounts that have to be put before the court on an audit, which is referred to as a passing of accounts. They are very carefully spelled out in the court rules as to exactly how they have to be put together. And in certain cases, particularly if there are problems arising with the administration under a power of attorney, that's the kind of accounting that the attorney has to prepare and present to other interested parties and before the court. In terms of the less formal situation where you're the attorney, you're looking after your mother or father's affairs, and you have to keep accounts, it should be uh, some form of proper accounting system, whether you get a, an accounting computer package that you can set up for on a software basis, whether you maintain it manually in a record book with the multiple columns of paper, but you have to be able to show all of the money that's received, all of the money that's paid out, and identify where it came from and where it went. And of course, one of the most important decisions that uh, has to be made in terms of looking after the health or well-being of the uh, of your parent or of, of an individual is, do we put them in a hospital? Do we put them in a, in a, uh, a residential center? Do we put them uh, uh, in, in a place where they're going to be looked after? Uh, what are the kind of uh, factors that uh, an attorney has to look at before they put their mom in a home, to, to be simple about it? That's a tough question to put in a, a legal context because it's so based on the family values, the history that the family have had with each other, with the parent, what the actual physical and mental conditions are. All of those things have to be taken into account and also how much, what are the resources available? What can they actually pay for? So all of those things have to be considered if there's going to be a a rational decision made. And and to what extent does the individual who has the power of attorney have to include and involve other members of his family or her family in that decision-making? The statute that governs this operation, which is called the Substitute Decisions Act, does say that the attorney or the guardian, if they're appointed by a court, is obliged to consult with the incapable person and determine their wishes to the extent that they're able to do so, and also to consult with supportive family members. Now, it's a rather broad definition. There's no really hard and fast, you must talk to your sister 
or you cannot talk to your aunt or something along that line. But there is a structure that's actually put right into the governing statute that says you've got to consult. <laughs> right, and uh, and I presume that the more you communicate with your family, the more you're being transparent about what you intend to do and what you want to do, this will probably head off a lot of problems down the road. Oh, exactly. The person who becomes secretive, who won't answer questions, who tries to keep things under wraps and tells everybody else it's none of their business, is just asking for trouble. So, uh, Margaret, we're going to talk about uh, what happens when that does occur in our second podcast. Uh, But for the time being, uh, I think what we've learned from you so far is uh, that being an attorney is is sometimes a difficult task and one that requires a a lot of balancing of a lot of different interests and factors, acting in an independent, impartial way. Uh, And I'm sure that people will have a lot of questions about this, and I'm wondering how they can get in touch with you to, to ask you those questions. Well, if they want to contact me directly, the... Email is mrintoul at blaney.com, and my direct phone number is 416-593-2981. And just one last note, uh, that checklist that uh, Margaret developed, we'll have a copy of that uh, uh, posted on our website right beside the podcast. Thanks again, Margaret, and we'll see you on the other podcast. Thank you. This is Lou Brzezinski with another Blaney's Brief. On this episode, Catherine McKinnis will discuss one of the most common problems that people get into, what to do when you sign a contract that you should not have signed. She will talk about ways to get out of the contract and reasons that you can avoid further contractual liability. So, without further ado, let's hear from Catherine. I would say that commercial litigation covers a large range of practice areas, including debt collection, shareholder and partnership fights, and even class actions. But I would say that the cornerstone of any commercial litigation practice is contract disputes, which is what I'm going to focus on today. The most common call that I get from a client or potential client is when they have just realized that they got into a contract with a person or entity that has, in some way, done them wrong. The call to me is usually for one of two reasons. One, they want to know their rights under a specific contract, and two, they want to get out of the contract. Because a party's rights under any contract are highly specific, today I am going to focus on the relatively common ways that you may be able to get out of a contract. The first step in figuring out how to get out of a contract is, however, to look at the actual language of the contract, whether it's your lease or a shareholder's agreement, because they almost always have some rules in there about how the agreement between the parties may come to an end. If the contract does not have that kind of provision or it doesn't help me, I consider the following. Is the agreement unfair? Has the other party already broken the contract? For example, if you had bought a sculpture from an artist who had sold it to someone else before you picked it up, you likely don't have to pay for it. Next, I would consider whether the contract was illegal. Courts in Ontario have no desire to uphold illegal contracts. If you entered into a contract to sell goods that had been imported without the proper payment of customs duties, that contract is likely illegal and therefore not enforceable. Next, I would consider whether any party to the contract was in some way incapable of making the contract. Generally speaking, courts aim to protect the weaker parties. If one of the parties was a minor or mentally incapable, they may be relieved from their obligations under the agreement. The next areas are a little more grey, but also more common. Has there been a mistake as to the terms of the contract? And finally, whether or not there has been some fraud or misrepresentation by the other party that induced you to enter the contract. 
This is one I get the most calls about. In this case, you have likely been tricked into entering a contract because the other party made a false statement to you. In this case, you may be able to get out of the contract, and if you have lost money as a result of the misrepresentation, you may be entitled to get that money back. The categories that I have discussed are very broad, but ones that you should consider if you think that you have entered into a contract with someone who has done you wrong. But to go back to the very beginning, I think the most important thing is to consider the people that you enter into contracts with before you sign them. You should treat all contracts like a marriage of sorts. No matter how well the contract is written, the costs to you to get out of the contract and the losses that you may incur from the contract are highly dependent on who you have chosen to contract with. If you have any questions regarding contracts, I'd be happy to discuss them with you. I can be reached at 416-593-2954 or by email at cmacinnis at blaney.com. Thank you.